You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, after the finishing of, of reading his, the, the Word of God, uh, the ushers will distribute the communion cups, which you, I will ask that you refrain from opening those until towards the end of the, or, or the service together. But we're in two separate places. We're going to start off with Matthew chapter 7, beginning with verse 28. It's just two, two verses. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had had authority and not as their scribes. And then John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the first five verses, and then verses 9 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to, all did, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You may be seated. So I finished the, the sermon on the, on the, I finished the last paragraph in the Sermon on the Mount. And so technically, the sermon series for the Sermon on the Mount, in terms of just unpacking what that sermon teaches, is, is over. But I felt the need for an epilogue. I, I felt the need to just kind of wrap it up in a way that would allow your heart to soar. That's, that's my hope today. My hope is that your hearts would soar. There was a poem that I was tempted to close our time with last week, and I decided to save it for this week, and it's a poem written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you know who he was. He was a German theologian who lived during the rise of Adolf Hitler and the SS. He didn't feel like he could come to the States, as some did, for safety, he felt like in order to, for him to be able to serve his people, he needed to suffer with them. He started an underground seminary. It was illegal to meet because he taught the scriptures. He wrote a poem after he was arrested for his involvement in the assassination plot of Adolf Hitler. Now, I don't have a whole lot of time to go into this, but you need to understand that Dietrich Bonhoeffer started off as a pacifist. And so for him to be a part of this plot uh, was, was pretty significant. He felt like he couldn't just sit by and watch his neighbors suffer, his Jewish neighbors. He was arrested because the assassination plot obviously was a failed attempt. He was found out, he was arrested, and a month before he was executed, he wrote this poem 
I'm just going to read it for you. The words will not be on the screen. I just want you to hear it. Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which others other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage struggling for breath, as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voice of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptible, woe-begone weakling? Or something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. He wrote that a month before he was hung in the gallows. As he faced the gallows, his uh, prison guard said to him, well, I guess this is the end, and Bonhoeffer looked at the gallows and he said, for me, this is the beginning. You know, I've heard you've asked similar questions through this sermon series that we started way back in May on the Sermon on the Mount. You've asked similar questions in your, in, in your own mind and in your own heart. You know, who am I? Who am I, who am I really? Even uh, before the service was having a conversation with somebody who was wrestling with some of these questions. My, I, I trust that your conclusion is, at least for most of you in this room, your conclusion is, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I am yours. And so, like I said, I hope, it is my hope, that by, by the end of the sermon, your hearts will soar. That's my prayer for you. It's been my prayer all, all this week, is that your hearts would soar. So, when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's just these two verses that I read for you in verse 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And it's interesting the way that these, that these people who heard Jesus' sermon, how they responded. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished. Why were they astonished? They were astonished at this authority that Jesus had in teaching and preaching the sermon that he had just preached. They were astonished over his authority or about his authority over the Word of God and how he was able to handle the Word of God. Most of our time this morning I want to spend in that first chapter of the Gospel of John. 
But you know, I find it interesting, before we get there, I find it interesting that in, in just the chapter that follows, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus, we're told, healed a leper with a single touch, demonstrating his authority over disease. In the same chapter, Jesus calmed a storm with the word of his mouth, demonstrating his authority over nature. Towards the end of that same chapter, we read how Jesus was confronted by two demon-possessed men. And when they arrived before Jesus, the demons who had possessed these men were trembling before the presence of Jesus Christ. He cast them out and cast those demons into a a herd of, or a large group of pigs, I don't know what you call them, <laughs> herd or whatever. Their, their question of Jesus when they approached him was, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And then in chapter 9, Jesus demonstrated his authority over death by raising from the dead the little daughter of Jairus. I find that interesting. I don't think there's, you know, Matthew just drew his account together. The the people were astonished at Jesus' authority to preach. And my guess is for many of them, that's where the astonishment ended. And they were wondering... What is it about his, this authority that this Jesus has? And in the following chapter, we discover that he has authority over disease, authority over, over uh, storms or nature, authority over demons, and authority over death. And we're left with, at the end of this sermon, uh, the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, we're, we're left with the notion that just to be astonished is not enough. So where did his authority come from? That's where we go to John chapter 1. There are all kinds of passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus' authority. <clears throat> I thought it would be good just to camp in John chapter 1 for a little bit because it's there we discover where his authority came from. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Through who? Through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. That's where His authority flowed from. Who is this one who preaches the greatest sermon that was ever preached? He is the Word made flesh. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. That's who he is. At the very beginning of John, in the beginning was the Word. Anybody who's reading the Gospel of John would have, or who heard it being read to them, would have immediately thought of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He spoke it into existence by the word of his mouth. The psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 6, let's read this together, ready? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. God spoke, 
And Jesus was the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, who took the anvil of his omnipotent power and struck it on nothing and created something. That's John chapter 1. All things were created through him and for him. Let me think about that. Where did his authority come from? It came from who he is. He is the, the, the word made flesh. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The dirt that he walked on, he was responsible for making. When he was confronted with disease, he had the authority to, to cure disease because he is the author of life. When his disciples were wigging out over a, a storm, he created the storms. He had the authority to quiet them. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In Colossians chapter 1, which is really interesting, just a little side note, Colossians chapter 1, there's a portion of it that scholars believe was actually an early church hymn that Paul included in his letter. Verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, what? Through him and for him. Like to be the firstborn of creation is not, it's not a statement of origin, it's a statement of preeminence. It wasn't saying that he was created like the Mormons suggested he was, or Jehovah Witnesses. This is not a statement of, being, of, 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 of origin. This is a statement of, of position. He has all the rights and privileges of, uh, of the king who, who's related to, who's, who's in association with the God of all creation. He has all those rights. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. Yeah, and, and what we learn of Jesus is that nobody, especially when they heard him preach this sermon, there was nothing extraordinary about him other than his teaching. He didn't look different than the typical human being. He didn't walk around with some halo over his head or his, light didn't, his face didn't glow in the dark. He was, he was like us. He was human. But he was also God. Nothing about him seemed extra, extraordinary. He looked like everyone else from a distance. As the ancient creed that, was, that was, has been read and repeated from generation to generation for hundreds and hundreds of years states, he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The one of whom Holy Scriptures testify was before all things, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he grew up like any other child. He went to school like any other child. He eventually graduated from school and worked a job like any other human being for a period of time. And then he went public. And people questioned like his sanity. Even members of his own family thought he was a little wacky. Like his brother's. He, he experienced everything that we experienced, yet he was without sin. Not once did he sin. 
The author of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, I don't want you to miss that point. Like John chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Like he was there in their midst, and they didn't, they didn't recognize it. They were amazed by him, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't, they didn't connect the dots. They didn't say, okay, so he has this authority. This authority must flow from his divinity, or his, that, that he is more than just a human being. And, and here's the thing that I just, I, I hope that you've gleaned over the course of the time that we've shared in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is this, that Jesus didn't come to be amazed or marveled at. He came to be received. John continues in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> Jesus said, of himself in John chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. You, you, you know this, right? Let's read this together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to just be marveled at and to be, for, for people to be amazed by his teachings. He came to be received. He came to dwell amongst the people for the purpose of living a life that they could never live, that they could never live. He lived the perfect life. He was sinless. He was our perfect high priest. He was tempted in every way, but yet without sin. In the Old Testament, there's a, there's a, a word that's used that's really important, and maybe you've heard of it before. It's kinsman redeemer. You read the book of Ruth. It talks all about it in kind of an indirect way. But a kinsman redeemer was somebody who had the ability to, to restore what was lost to a family member. The kinsman redeemer had to meet three requirements in order to purchase property that had been taken from the family, maybe due to debt or, or whatever the reason. A kinsman redeemer first had to uh, be a relative of the affected family. A kinsman redeemer, secondly, had to have the means to purchase the property back for the affected family. And thirdly, a kinsman redeemer had to be willing to restore the lost property back to the affected family. The Bible, you know, I, said, I said throughout the sermon series, I said, you know, if there was a, if you want to understand how, how to read the Bible for it to make sense, like there, there is a hermeneutical key that's really important. That hermeneutical key is Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Genesis 1 and 2 is all about Jesus. Exodus is about Jesus. <laughs> Leviticus is about Jesus. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, all about Jesus. The Psalms, about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. He's the kinsman redeemer. The book of Ruth is really about Jesus. It's about him. He's the kinsman redeemer. He, he, he had the, we needed a kinsman redeemer because of what happened in the garden. What happened in the garden? You know the story. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They, they, they wanted to be like God. And then 
and sinning, they ate this fruit that God said you're not allowed to eat from, uh, and the motive was, like I said, to be like God. In sinning, they hid. They hid from God. God found them, and he clothed them with animal skins. He promised them that one day uh, a descendant would come from, from their gene pool who would crush the head of the serpent, who was the devil. Like all this was promised. And that Jesus was born to be our kinsman redeemer. He had to be 100% human. So by being born of a virgin, the second person of the Trinity became a member of the family. <laughs> he took on humanity. By being the word of God, he had the means to pay the price to, to redeem what was lost through Adam's sin. And then thirdly, because he's the word become flesh and he dwelt among us, Jesus demonstrated he was willing to be our kinsman redeemer. Like all this is really important. Because I, I kept saying throughout the sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, is that what is the secret sauce to, uh, to, to obeying the Sermon on the Mount, to applying the Sermon on the Mount to your life, is to hunger and thirst for a righteousness that is not your own. Jesus is the righteousness that we need. We need a relationship with him. That's why amazement at Jesus' words and life only is not enough. Like, remember like the last, what, four weeks? I looked at those four different comparison statements Jesus made. You know, the first one was um, the, wide road, the wide gate versus the narrow gate. The second one was, you know, the, the tree that bears fruit versus the diseased tree that doesn't bear fruit. The third paragraph leading up to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount is you have those who say Jesus is Lord and you have those who know Jesus is Lord. And then finally, you have the wise builder, and then you have the foolish builder. Your amazement at Jesus' words and life only is often true of those who are on the wide road. It's the expression of the unfruitful, diseased tree. It's the, the words of those who, whom Jesus does not know. And the only, it's, only, it's the only fixtures that are hanging, in, it's the fixtures that are hanging on si inside the house of the foolish builder. Like Jesus came to redeem a people. This is the, this is the whole point. Like where, where will you find safety from the judgment of God for your sins? Jesus. There's a passage in Philippians. Again, scholars think that that these verses in Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 are actually a part of an early church hymn. But consider these words. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by, be by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like this is the Jesus who preached the Sermon on the Mount. And what many people didn't realize as he was preaching this sermon was that before them was the one promised long ago in Isaiah chapter 53 who would be pierced for their transgressions, who would be crushed for their iniquities. Before them, as they marveled over his words, 
was the one who was, would be pierced for our transgressions and would be crushed for our iniquities on a Roman cross of wood. And, and on that day when Jesus was executed, every single Hebrew man and woman understood what it meant to see this one that they marveled at as he preached, the greatest sermon ever preached, hanging on that cross. They understood that the one hanging on the cross was now cursed of God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Like this is why I keep going back to, what, where is it that we can find safety from, from a judgment that we deserve from a holy God? It's Jesus. How do we get there? We arrive as those who are poor in spirit at the cross. Nothing in our hands we bring. We, just, we, we come empty-handed. And we come to the cross of Christ as those who are mourning over our sins. We grieve over our sins. And then thirdly, we are willing to lay down our will and our pride before the cross in order to receive the forgiveness of our sins. We sang that song just not long ago, right? What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? Who holds our days within his hand? what comes apart from his command, and what will keep us to the end, the love of Christ in which we stand. Amen? I had three points. I forgot to mention the first two. You saw them on the screen. But the third one is that, is that this authority that Jesus had includes the authority that he has over the church. He's the head of the church. And this will be brief. I just want you to think about this. Like he is the head of the church. John says in his gospel that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then he goes on to say, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's where, the, where safety is found. It's in and through Jesus, and he's the head of the church. He's the head of the church. I love, I love the Beatitudes and how those first three Beatitudes is, you know, you, you, poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who, who are meek. That's the laying down your pride part. And then the very next beatitude that follows it is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be what? Satisfied. They'll be satisfied. How will we be satisfied? We'll be satisfied in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. That's where our satisfaction comes from. There's a book that the staff are reading, and I'm actually meeting with some guys on you know, Tuesday afternoons at 4. I have them reading this book, as, as well as reading through uh, the book of Ephesians in the Bible. The, book, the title of the book is The Loveliest Place. I highly recommend it. It's about the church. It's a, a, just a theological treatise on the church. It's a very easy to, easy to read. Dustin Binge or ben, Benji, I guess is how you pronounce his name, he, he wrote something in that book that just staggered me, and I want to share it with you. The words are on the screen. And this is what he said. The cross, with all of its blood flowing, lacerated flesh, and the stench of death becomes the epicenter of cleansing for sinners, where Christ looks lovingly upon his darling bride and declares, my love, you are beautiful. Isn't that good? 
And I was thinking about that. Jesus, Jesus is not an abusive husband. He is not a demeaning husband. He is not a conniving husband. He's not a manipulative husband. He is a good husband. Think about it. Like the way he, he, he gave himself for the church is the model that's given to every human husband on earth in the way that he is to treat his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In this vein, the Bible declares this, and he is the head of the body. This is again, from Colossians. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I love that word preeminent. It's an old word, but it's a good word. What does preeminent mean? Well, preeminent, think of this. The sun, our sun in our solar system, is preeminent to the flame on a candle. That's what preeminent means. A Boeing passenger plane, jet or whatever, is preeminent to a paper airplane. Jesus is preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, listen to this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. Let's, let's read this together, ready? And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Amen? Amen. Like, where is your safety found? It's found in Jesus. Not in your own righteousness, not in your religion, not in you attending church every Sunday or reading your Bible every day. It's in Jesus Christ, in him alone. This is why it's not enough to be amazed by Jesus. It's not enough to be amazed by his Sermon on the Mount. He is worthy of so much more than your amazement. Sky Jathani, who in the conclusion of his book, What If Jesus Was Serious, said this, and I just want you to think about it. He said, our problem, I think, is that pop Christianity has emphasized Jesus' love but ignored his intelligence. We treat him like a benevolent old uncle who gives us advice because he truly cares for us but deep down, we suspect he doesn't understand how the modern world really works, so we dismiss his well-meaning input. Jesus is smart. Jesus is serious. Imagine how your life would be different if you took him at his word, and imagine how our world would be different if those who claim to follow Jesus actually did. I talked about the, the Sermon on the Mount being the center of what it looks like to follow Jesus, and the gospel draws us to that. And yeah, are you going to be able to nail down the Sermon on the Mount perfectly? No. But if you know him in the Gnosko kind of way, you're going to move closer and closer to what the Sermon on the Mount calls us to. So I ask you, right, what are you doing with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? What idols in your life need to be replaced with the Christ to whom belongs power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. That's the song all of creation sings in heaven, or all, all of heaven sings. You who say that Jesus is Lord and Savior, how long will you dismiss what he has said? 
how long will you live as though his commands do not apply to you? You know, we're finished with the sermon on the, ser- uh, the sermon series. I caught it something greater. But the question I want to leave you with is the same one Dietrich Bonhoeffer asked. Who are you really? And secondly, who is Jesus to you truly? And we're going to be singing a modern hymn, and Ryan and, and Larry can come up. And when, as we sing this song, <clears throat> when you're ready, I'm not going to lead, lead you through communion. I just, when you're ready, I want you to take communion on your own. To take, just to reflect on what the, what the bread symbolizes and what the, what the ju- juice symbolizes as we sing this song. But I want to share some of the verses with you. The title of it is, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. It was written, I think, in 2018. And I just want to share it with you. The words will be on the screen here. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness, and my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.